Hello, and welcome back to Words, the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Cristiano. And I'm Stuart. And in today's episode, we will be discussing 1968's Horizontal. We pick up from the last episode in July 1967, when the Bee Gees begin working on what will become Horizontal. Now, already in this month, they bring back Harry Braff, a song that they'd started during the Bee Gees' first sessions, and which can be found... An early version can be found on the 2006 reissue of Bee Gees First, but they bring it back. So what they did, they did an early version of that and then obviously put it to one side. It didn't, either didn't have time or whatever, but anyway, it's brought back again for this, uh, this album. And that's where things begin. So what did they do in July? Did they... We're looking at research. Um, the Bee Gees flew to America on a promotional trip. I think doing most of the states, they did New York, Florida, LA, Chicago... Detroit. Massachusetts? <laughs> no. And do you know what the charts were like in America then? Well, there were three songs, one, two and three, that were all totally different to what was in the UK. The first one is a song called Windy. I think I know it, but I'm not going to sing it. There's another <laughs> one called a, uh, a Little Bit of Soul. Another one I couldn't do either. And the last one is Can't Take My Eyes Off You. And then if you compare it to the UK, the UK's number one was Whiter Shade of Pale. Next one was All You Need Is Love, and the third one was Alternative Title. When discussing the charts in the last episode, you commented on how a lot of the music was very psychedelic and very poppy. Is the music landscape still the same a few months on? Well, what Shade of Pale, I would say definitely. All You Need Is Love, well, that's the Beatles' big anthem. And Alternative Title was obviously the Monkeys that had a TV programme at the time, so that was on the back of that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're all, I would say, all totally different types of songs. Okay. This is a busy period for the Brothers Gibb because at this point, or around this point, they're also planning a feature film, Lord Kitchener's Little Drummer Boys. It's all about being called up into the First World War, these young boys who are musicians. I know that the Bee Gees throughout the 60s, they, uh, um, they was always on some sort of film. We're going to write a film, we're going to do a TV show, which obviously did mature in three years' time, but... Um, We'll see later on whether anything progresses. Or in 1978, whether anything progresses. Oh, yeah. And then on the 17th of July, that's when recording sessions began for... It's either their fourth LP, if you're an Australian fan from 1963... Or their second LP, if you're a worldwide fan. <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> the difficult second album, or the difficult fourth album. <laughs> As with the previous episode, we're going to be going through the album's tracks and also the additional material and associated singles, giving our opinions and thoughts. However, unlike the last episode, we're going to be doing something differently here. We're going to be scoring every track from the main album out of ten. And prior to this, what we did, we got out the album, had a look at the sleeve, went through all the song titles... Without listening to it, we looked at the songs and gave them a mark out of 10. And then we thought then, as Chris said, we'll compare the difference after spending a week with this album in the car, in the house, wherever we could. Before we discuss through this album, when was the first time you heard it? It probably would have been mid-80s. Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard it before then. It was really, I think, when all CDs came out that I brought it. Because, luckily I did, because they, it was quite difficult to get hold of. And then... I didn't really hear it properly then until they, all these reshoots come out in 2006. I'm guessing that before listening, before you first heard the album, you'd already heard Massachusetts and... Oh yeah, from well, the best of the Bee Gees. And obviously it's on all the time, isn't it? I mean, 
I think I brought my first Bee Gees album around about 1978, 79, but I didn't go and buy them all at once then. I just sort of brought one every now and again. I think I brought Trafalgar on cassette. Um, two years on was record collector and stuff, but um, no, no. So you probably think a bit mid-80s with this one. Okay. Well, then we're not going to be having your scores out of 10 from the mid-80s. This was just from a few weeks ago. <laughs> There's lots going on since then. <laughs> start to the album what a little classic I mean is there a better way to start an album all the Bee Gees I think are on brilliant form on this one yeah in Bee Gees first a lot of the songs were Barry and Robin is this a, a band effort this one well looking at it I think nearly all the compositions on this album are all three of them so I think it's, this album's got a little more of a ba- more of a band appeal yeah with all five of them contributing rather than just because I think the other one there was Barry and Robin or I think there was only two, wasn't there, that we, we found was... Yes. ...was the two. You can definitely hear that in this song and in the rest of the album. This has a much fuller sound. Uh, production of the album, of this song, feels much grander, with much more piano-led, I found. Oh, OK. Starting with this song and carrying on through the whole of Horizontal. And also, on Bee Gees first, electric guitars weren't prominent at all, but here... Vince is really coming to the fourth with his electric guitar. And also, I think um, Morris is with his bass. Yes, terrific playing on there. So we'll discuss a bit later on. I've painted a couple of notes about his bass playing. Yeah. Superb. Beforehand, you said that this was a fantastic way to open an album. And I read in the album notes from the 2006 reissue that Robin regards this as a statement song, reflecting the times that they were in, more than being just a standard song. Oh, okay, because, I mean, I've also seen that Barry said that they composed a song because they were seeking the meaning of life. be very deep, isn't it? Yes, I saw that. The quotation from Barry was, what we are saying is that you can't live in your own little world because somewhere there is trouble. It's always raining somewhere in the world for somebody. Which is very true. Yeah. Yeah, very true, that. This song started life in the studio on the 3rd of October. The song features Barry and Robin alternating on vocals, and I have to say that, for me, is a highlight of the song, towards the end, when you've got the takeover from Barry to Robin and vice versa. This is something that they will perfect on the next album. I'll get onto that song in the next episode. Do you agree? Do you like this as well? Oh, I do. And what I like, Chris, is the crescendo, as it builds up throughout yeah. the song. And then we also we get the... Uh, well, it's quite a familiar sign through the 60s of the glockenspiel doing its little thing towards the end. Unfortunately, this song, like a lot of the ones on the album, this album, it does fade out. They do. There is a couple that fade out and there is a couple I think they didn't know where the song ends. Yeah. So they sort of just sort of cut it out 
Well, they just faded out as well because you can sort of hear there's one of them. I'll have to think where it is. Where it sounds like there's a little bit of a song coming in somewhere. I was just about to say that's one of the bonus tracks that we'll get onto where Robin starts going off onto a completely different song and then it, it fades as though that's a different idea. But going throughout the big production of this song is a really fantastic hook and verse and chorus. All of it works really well. I particularly like the second verse, the If I Remember section. With a great verse and chorus like that, did that help this song with the singles? Well, they released this one in December. Mm-hmm. It was released in the UK and got to number nine, I believe. Uh, and I think it made number one in Germany. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't released in in America. Well, the album came out, it, was it February 68? So these singles were all precursors going into the album. Yeah, and obviously in the UK it followed up the number one in Massachusetts. Yes, yeah. So it had, it had uh, a lot to live up to, but obviously getting to number nine, it did the trick. Well, that shows how much um, demand there was for the Bee Gees by this point, how much of an audience and fan base they built up. Well, I think the fan base was getting bigger. Particularly in Germany, obviously having the number one. That wow, was okay. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they must have been um, very popular there. Mm-hmm. There's a quotation from the Bee Gees Bible that is the fantastic Tales of the Brothers Gibb Ultimate Biography, which is highly recommended in which uh, Robin's partner, Molly, she's recollecting events that happened in Germany. All right. And uh, she says that the Germans were wilder than the fans in England were at the heights of Beatlemania. Oh, so it must have been their version of the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Like it was here in sort of pre-66. Must have been BG-mania, <laughs> yeah. you can call it that. Well, even further down uh, in this book, and it's talking about when they were in Switzerland, and I'll read this out. With only a day off, the group was off to Switzerland what Morris described as the scariest tour date. He says, There were over 5,000 kids at the airport at Zurich. When we got to the hotel, the police weren't there to meet us, and the kids crushed the car. We were inside, and the windows were all getting smashed in, and we were on the floor. Even Barry says, I was terrified that day, when 20,000 kids suddenly surrounded the car. They climbed on top. I said to Robin, What do we do now? And he said, Sing, you fool. Obviously he didn't sing wrong to me then. (laughs) What's the scores on the doors for you with this song? For me, it's a it's a big fat nine. And I would go very close to that with an eight. Oh, okay. So you're slightly less than me then. To let listeners know how I'm going to be rating this, for me, if a song has a five out of ten, that means that there's as much that I like as there is that I dislike. That's how I would tend to rate things. I'm, I'm going in the middle with a nine. Yeah, well deserved for this song. And the rain will fall it falls over you And the clouds will break into tears You should be here, standing so near to me Here we are, only the second song into the album and we've already got Robin's warbling ballad. <laughs> well, I think it's another classic. Oh, definitely. Yeah, so you, you've got... World, and then followed by this one. It's a great way to start the album. Mm-hmm. I mean, the song's called As The Sun Will Shine, and Robin certainly shines with his singing. <laughs> this is a trademark Robin song. You could cut it a cross-section and you'd see Robin in the middle. I agree with you, because, I mean, I think we were talking earlier, wasn't we? We thought that this one would probably be like a follow-up to Holiday. Yeah, there's definitely a through line that you can see going from Holiday into this and then into a couple of songs on the next few albums. Easy. 
The song opens with what sounds to me like a 12 string. An arpeggiated 12 string oh, that reminded me quite... That's a good word. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's my one special work of the day. <laughs> Uh, and it reminded me quite a lot of Steve Hackett's The Lovers, quite an obscure track from his first album. Oh, that's very sort of romantic. Yes, yeah. yeah. For those who don't know, Steve Hackett was in Genesis till about 77, and he did some fantastic stuff, particularly first four albums from 75 through to about... 1980. 80, 80, yeah, were cracking albums. So worth, worth, definitely worth a listen. And we're also big Paul McCartney fans, which I think we touched on in the last episode. Just a little bit. Yeah. Well, did you know the, the connection between Paul McCartney and this song? No. There was a re- version released by Paul Jones, he of Manfred Mann, and he released this as a single with Paul McCartney on drums. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, Paul McCartney, there's Jeff Beck on guitar. So it's like a quite an early super group, and I think Nicky Hopkins is on it as well. Paul McCartney's on it, but because it was on, I think it's on Columbia Record Label, they didn't, he, he's not... Um, Contractually signed. No, them. no. I think it was produced by Peter Asher... Ah, okay, so there's the connection. Yeah, obviously with Paul McCartney going out with Jane. And this is 1967. 67. So been sat around doing the White Album. Yeah, so I, no, it would have been before that. Be, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, be yeah. sort of July, you're probably talking Magical Mystery Tour. She must have been in contact with Pete or Peter, vice versa. They needed a, Paul, a drummer, so Paul must have obviously stepped in anonymously. For me, this song is probably in the Bee Gees' top best, best top 20. I know going back to the 80s, you used to sort of do a compilation cassette tape. Always had this one in there. Tended to end side one or 90 minutes later on the other side, side two. But always de- always included it. I would say this is in my top 12 Bee Gees songs on horizontal. <laughs> Not as... Big on it as you are, but I do really like it. Probably because I've had more years of listening to it yeah, than you. Yeah. It was one that I always used to like. I haven't done one of these compilations because they, they things you used to do on cassette tapes and then just put it in the car and listen to it. Well, what's your score for this song then? Well, I've gone for a, a nine on this one. Okay. It, I like uh, same with World. I probably didn't mention that's another one of my top twenty songs. So, if we're going down the scoring line, I'm going to give them both nine. And for me, this one sits very comfortably at a seven. As you said, a great. Second song to this album. It can't get better, can it? You and I often talk about albums where we really like the first three tracks, and and then then they sort of dwindle, don't they? Pick up again a bit at the end, but I think it's different now. When you listen, before you used to listen to an album, then you got you got six, seven songs, stop it, turn over, and then they've got to start it again. But when CDs come out, there was a beginning and an end and a middle, so that you didn't feel you got the same experience as turning a record over. And sometimes that middle would get up to about an hour and 20. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, way too long. I did I did read that uh, the demo for this would turn out to be virtually the final version, but I think they just added a few bits and pieces afterwards. Mm-hmm. So obviously they must have been well pleased with the vocal performance. I do wonder with that whether at this point they were on 8-track, 16-track, how much freedom they had to, to play with mixing down tracks and using demos and stuff. That would be something that I'd, I'd like to find out more about. 
But I think obviously Robin must have must have cracked the vocal because it really it's a trademark Robin song, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's a coincidence that you really like this song, Dad, because Robin does. He regards it as one of his favourites. Now, whether that's one of his favourites from this album or one of his favourites of all time through the Bee Gees canon, but he describes it as a very emotional song, but a lot of the words just came ad-libbed, which was interesting. He goes on to say that the song wasn't intentional, it was just the result of the Bee Gees um, playing together in the studio, ad-libbing words, and they were very pleased with the atmosphere of the song, and they didn't want to do too much to the song, because they thought that would take it away. So Shepherd, I believe it was Shepherd added orchestra to the record oh, to okay. keep that mood. Yeah, and like many songs from the 60s, great songs, it wasn't released as a single. It was just, no. a, just a quality album track. Did it appear, was it on Best of Bee Gees? Was it on Tales of the Brothers Gib? I think it's on the Tales of the Brothers Gib, the four CD box set. Yeah. Uh, but I'll have to flip through the album. But I'm sure it's on the, it must be on the Best of Bee Gees. Well, if not, it's on all your compilations. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, this is an unusual one, but very surreal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lemons Never Forget. I mean, do you know what it's about? Because I haven't got a clue. Well, from what I could find, a quotation from Barry, he said that it was a bit of a send-up on Apple. He commented, he was commenting, on the perceived mess of Apple at the time. You've had Brian Epstein, unfortunately, passing away earlier on in 1967, resulting in a disarray of the Beatles, which really resulted in their breakup in 1967. Oh, OK. So were they saying that the Bee Gees were lemons then? If the Beatles were the apples, then Bee Gees Be- were the lemons. Oh, right. So they must have been bitter about something. <laughs> <laughs> you can't and, say they're very t- sour, then. Tennessee see with the strawberries. Oh, yeah. Very good. Very good. In fact, with this song, I find that Barry's putting on quite a bit of an uh, affected, nasally Lennon vocal. Yeah. Th- this whole song for me, as we were just talking about, is a bit of a, it is a bit of a Beatles send-up. But do you think do you think Barry sounds quite bluesy on this one? Because I think it's got quite a good, you know, it's like a band sound in the song. Well, yeah, and Robin even says he he thinks it is one of Barry's supreme rock songs, which I'm, I don't know if I'd agree with. But he's, Robin thinks that he's got a really great sound to his voice. Yeah, I think so. Even with the Lennon vocal style and the style of the song, it reminded me a lot of Billy Joel's song Laura. Laura calls me what she needs a good. That's from the Nylon Curtain, oh, okay. which he did. It was an album that came out either 1981 or 82, and he was purposely, after the unfortunate death of John Lennon, he was inspired to write an album that was very much taken on from the Beatles. Oh, OK, because there's quite a few artists that, that were inspired by John, and unfortunately by John Lennon's death. Mm-hmm. There's also Elton John did one called Empty... That's really good. Yeah. It's a really good yeah. song. I think, is it Empty Garden? Yes. I think it's called Empty yeah. Garden. Yeah. This is another one of those songs I think after listening to the album for about five to ten times. Well, for me, it's, it's a lot better than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. That's good. We should see that at the end then yes. with your changes of uh, yeah, scores. Oh, yeah. What is your score for this? For one? this one, I'm giving it a seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very fair. 
I've, have you gone with? I've gone for an eight. Oh, okay, really so you're like starting up on me this time. Yeah, so. always been a great favourite of mine. Oh, right, yeah. I think the, the Beatles-y style has always helped. It's, it's instantly put it up there for me. I'll get it off somehow I'll leave it all in the air No, no This song is Robin reflecting on the Hither Green train crash that he was involved in, him and Molly from the... Oh, I read something about this, yeah. Yeah, on the 5th of November, 1967, Guy Fawkes night, uh, the train on the way from Hastings to London. They were over, Molly and Robin were over at the seaside, I'd imagine, somewhere on the east coast. Uh, and they'd gone to Stigwood's house to pick up two demos. Supposedly they were of Sinking Ships and When Things Go Wrong. Do you know, I've never heard that one. I mean, I've, I've read about When Things Go Wrong as, as a, a song title. Never ever heard it. Quite a foreboding title, When Things Go Wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, it was people, if I'm right, 51 people actually died mm, in the train crash. Yeah, I know they, and they went to help people, didn't they? Yeah, pulling people out. But Robin said that with the song really and sincerely it doesn't mention anything about a train crash but it does no. reflect the mood that he was in the chorus is the best part of it yes I agree turn me down oh how I tried really and sincerely I think a big part of that melancholy comes from the piano accordion that he's playing along with. This is one that he purchased in Paris, and he said that he wrote the chorus. It was on the night that he purchased it. I'm not sure whether he got this accordion after the train crash or before, and so therefore whether he he already had the chorus. Oh, okay. He just built the rest of the song because it does sound it does sound like he's walking through the streets of Paris. Yeah. And you got some guy playing accordion walking behind him. Despite this being a Robin heavy song, this is credited to all three of them. Uh, yeah, along with the rest of the album. Yeah. But like you, it, it's more of a Robin solo song. And he did say afterwards, after the train crash and with this pensive mood that he's in, that it made him, I mean, as a 17-year-old, very young to be involved in something like that. But he did say it really made him reconsider his outlook on life and that he didn't want to get too hung up on the material things and oh, okay. bigger arguments. Yeah, because for me, the saving grace in this song as well is the brilliant orchestration. Oh, it? definitely. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Being such an emotional highlight on the album, I'll give this an 8 out of 10. As I said, it's a dip in, dip in quality for me, so I've, I've only gone with a 5 on this one. Okay, that's fair enough. I think it's a bit one slow song too many for me. Betty told me I must get over you Somehow And she told me Never to think of you Right now But it's hopeless to say How can I forget the way she used to love me Barry regards this one as a pretty song, and I completely agree. He says it's one about love on the rebound, Obviously, the person has lost the one he loves, and she's telling him it's going to be all right. I, uh, yeah, for me, this is 
like a spiritual successor to One Minute Woman, which was a favourite of mine. On oh, good B- link. On yeah, Plus. good link. Well, I'll be honest with you. Since again, in one of those, since listening to the album again, it's it's another Red Chair Fadeaway earworm for me. Yeah, especially the chorus. You can't help but keep humming the chorus. I mean, I think it's a terrific song. I think it's catchy, and I think it's quite McCartney esque. Yeah, it's got- I could quite happily see Paul McCartney doing something like this. You know, from Sergeant Pepper even. I think it, it, it's, it's really good. Now, with all four of the reissues going from Bee Gees first to Odessa, all of the discs gave you stereo and the mono. Listening to this song where I thought the vocals, particularly towards about 1 minute 30 in the I song... I know what you're going to say. Is that the bit with the, the guitar? Yeah, and the guitar feels lost, the vocals feel a bit lost, but the strings are very far forward in the stereo. Play the mono, and in that section, it's just the right balance. And I really love, at the end of the song, a chord. It sounds like it's done on some woodwind instruments, but it's got a really Disney-like, classic Disney feel to it, which is um, very good production, again, from Bill Shepard. This one, for me, gets a 9 out of 10. You've gone for a 9, have you? Yeah. I've put 8, but I am tempted to say 9, but at the minute I'll, I'll stick to an 8. Well, we've had an up song. I think now we'll go back to uh, a little bit mournful. How can I prove There is no reasoning or asking why Only to prove I love you deeply with the sun in how do you think it stands as a final track to close side one? I don't know where else to put it on the album apart from the last track. Mm-hmm. As I said before, it, you, you're ending side one on a ballad, knowing what's to come next. It sort of finishes the side off nicely, ready to start side two. Like you with Birdie Told Me, this is one that, in preparation for this album, has risen up for me, and it's becoming more of a favourite on the album more than it was. The production for this song is quite simplistic, more simplistic I think so. than the rest of the album, which is quite heavy. It's quite a heavy album. But it makes a change, doesn't it? Yeah, compared to the, the lighter, Bee Gees first an idea and much lighter albums, much m- more pop, quirky, uh, whereas this one isn't. This is Barry singing live to Morris, who's playing on the organ, and then it was given overdubs afterwards of String and Harp by Shepherd. Along with nearly every other track, I think, isn't it? But uh, I definitely agree with you. It, it's a more sparse, sparse record. Good way to end side one. Now, with just that organ sound and Barry's vocals, which McCartney song do you think this reminds me of? Um, go on, have you clue? It's a wing song. Wing song. Is it from London Town? Close. I'm carrying. No, next album. Back to the Egg. The only one I can think of is there's a four-part medley on the B-side. You've got it. Um, I would, if, out of them four, I'd, I would go for Million Miles. That's the one, yeah, where oh, it's just okay. it's a lovely song with Paul and accordion. Yeah? It reminded me oh, of good, that. Oh, good, good, uh, good spot. How many million miles they 
There's also, a, I don't know if you've heard, there's also a gorgeous uh, record by Graham Goldman on Animal Olympics called Love's Not For Me. Okay. And that is accordion. And it, again, it's one of these, you think it's set in Paris, but it, it, it's a beautiful song. There comes a time when you must choose About the path you're gonna take And you must take it with all So what score are you going to give this one then, Chris? I'm going to go for an 8 out of 10. Do you know, we can't agree on anything, can we? I've dipped down after the last one to 7. Okay, fair enough. Hopefully uh, side 2 is a bit more in your favour. I don't think there's a better way to start. But uh, it's quite coincidental, isn't it, that this album and the previous one, I think the previous one started side two with New York Mind Disaster, and now this one with Massachusetts. Do you think it was planned? I think it's a deliberate thing to open up a second side or to begin a side or an album with the single. And also New York, America, Massachusetts, America. Because it's so overplayed, it's, it's a little bit difficult to judge it. Overplayed but never tired out. Oh, I don't think so. And it and it always makes you feel happy. Yeah. You know, it, it's uplifting. Gorgeous arrangements. Yeah. I and mean, I can see why it was the first Bee Gees number one as well. Yeah, well deserved. Very well deserved. Lyrically, this is a reversal of that late 60s hippie movement with... Because there was that single, it was number four in America. Is it with flowers in your hair or something? That's it. And so the Bee Gees thought, well, if everyone's going to... San Francisco, what about everyone else left over in Massachusetts and the lights are going down? It's a song about homesickness and and the desire and the love to go back home. This was, as you said, number one in the UK. And did you know it took 17 weeks to get to number one? Um, The B-side of this one, it's a bit bit of a strange one, this one, because the B-side in the UK was Barker, the uh, UFO. Mm -hmm. And in the US, they went with uh, Sir Geoffrey, which was the B-side to words. And undoubtedly, this one was helped to get to number one by Top of the Pops. Yes, yeah, they show the, they show the clip quite a bit. Most recently, it appeared on the How Can You Mend a Broken Heart documentary from 2020. And that's another one worth recommending. Yeah, very good. They play some. That's a good documentary because they play some of the unusual tracks. Yeah, stuff you don't hear all the time. No, I suppose everything's got its criticism. They do jump a little bit, and like a lot of BG stuff, it does concentrate on the, the popular disco yeah. era. We've, we've mentioned before, sort of 71, 72, 73, do get skimmed over pretty quickly. About the life in Speak about the people I have seen. And the lights of... According to Morris... They wrote Massachusetts in 15 minutes and recorded it in three takes. Wow, that was quick. Yeah, very quick. For me, not only did they nail the vocals, 
Um, another big thing I like is the, is the sweeping strings. Yeah, really nice, really, really nice and smooth. And even Barry regards this as Shepard's finest arrangement. All right. High praise. This really is a faultless single. There's no way that this couldn't have topped the charts. No. It's one of those songs. There's no way it couldn't have been a hit. Do you think it's typical? Of, well, I suppose you wouldn't know 67, would you? But it, it's pure pop music. Mm. Looking at the notes, it was recorded sort of middle of August. Mm-hmm. So they obviously must have liked it to record it August and release as a single in September. For me, this song feels like it set the model for the album. It feels as though the rest of the album was moulded around this song. Yeah. All the songs feel very much... Sometimes you'll get uh, an album where the single doesn't quite fit, but this one, Massachusetts, sounds and feels like the rest yeah. of the album. And I mentioned it earlier on, Bet Morris's bass playing. It, it, it's good on this one yeah. as well. Fantastic. Really position. good. How have you rated this in your scores? Well, this didn't take much thinking. I've gone with a 10. Mm-hmm. I've given it a 9. Although I think it's the perfect BG song in their canon, it's not necessarily my favourite. That's what you've got to go on, isn't it? Yeah. You're... Objectively, you're right, it's a 10. But for me, subjectively, I'll give it a 9. Well, I'm going to stick with my 10. Mm-hmm. And now for the next track, or should we say race track. <laughs> yeah, off we go. Checkered flag, checkered flag, checkered flag for Harry Braff. Checkered flag, checkered flag, checkered flag for Harry Braff. Goodbye, Harry Braff. It's so good to see him in the race. And the crowd feeling proud just to know. I wonder what this song's about. Did I ain't got a clue? Well, I think I might be speaking for both of us when I say least favourite on the album. By far the I mean, I could live without this one. Yeah. Um, I I think the Bee Gees had some songs that they could quite easily have swapped this one with. I don't know whether you could have put this one as a B-side and put one of the B-sides in this. I mean, it's a fun song. Yeah. But it, The it, most quirky on the album. Without doubt it is. Yeah. And it's no coincidence we're saying the weakest song on the album is the only one that's a pullover from Bee Gees first. Because they didn't... Obviously, if they thought it was that good, they would have continued working on yeah. it. Yeah. They probably thought they had, they had the basis of a good idea and didn't want to spend that much time on it. We joked earlier about the subject matter of the song. It's very clear this is a song about racing. However, when it comes to pop songs about motor racing, I think George Harrison did it much better in 1979. I guess in faster. Yeah, that's a fantastic song. After listening to the version that came with the deluxe reissue of Bee Gees First, there are some differences to the lyrics Is and there? also the production. Oh, okay. Certainly, the Bee Gees, as you said, liked it enough to want to get it out there and want to develop it. I think they re- did a third version, which was the one that was that were released. Mm-hmm. Despite this not being a favourite of mine on the album, I do really like the arrangement from the second half of the song to the end, where it breaks down and you've got the tension build up as you've got the dun dun dun. Oh, from the, as, as an actual race then. Yeah. Harry Brown. Harry Brown. And it links into what Barry said about the song, where he believed that it was nice to come up with things that give people pictures. This is a song about imagery and a a story song that people can follow. 
and uh, picture in their minds. So you couldn't imagine this one on, as a theme tune then to uh, Formula One then, so Fleetwood Max Chains. <laughs> it's not quite iconic as that. <laughs> For both of us being the weakest on the album, it's reflected in both of our scores. I've given this one a five. And I'm one down from you on a four. Okay. So, so far then, we've agreed on nothing. No, we haven't. <laughs> Maybe we can finally agree on the next song, Daytime Girl. song's got quite a poignant uh, arrangement very George Martin-esque with the with the strings and woodwind backing in that baroque choppy yeah, style yeah, yeah. well I did read it's the demo that they used they did try a second version but uh, they obviously went with the the original and the arrangement we just referred to then as being quite George Martin-esque seems to be something that the Gibb brothers picked up on themselves. Robin regards this song as having a sort of 15th century medieval feel. Oh, right. What makes him think that, then? Well, he also said that something that they were inspired by at the time was classic folk and that Daytime Girl is a melancholy isolation of classical folk. Mm. So do you think that's why they did the sort of Eleanor Rigby trick, you know, sort of... I should think they were wanting to try out different arrangement styles and they were dipping into their love for the Beatles again with... Well, it helps with the variety of the album, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. The arrangement of the song is a bit of a precursor as to what they'd be going on to do around 12 months later for Odessa, with songs such as The Sound of Love and Melody Fair. No specific song from Odessa, but it was the the mood that the arrangement evoked reminded me of that album. Well, that was a big classical album, wasn't it? Yeah, very majestic. Oh, definitely, yeah. However, at this point on Horizontal, I do feel that this is perhaps one ballad too many. Would you agree? Yes, I, I... if the album so far, I th- don't think has got quite the variety of the first one. No, I agree with you there. Even though probably the quality of the songs are better. Yeah. I just it doesn't it doesn't have the the difference, does it? It's quite as I said at the beginning, it, it's quite a band album. So I suppose you could probably are going to get less. For my scoring, I've given this one a seven out of ten. Oh, for me, it's a really pleasant song, and I'm I'm going to go with you, same as you. Seven. Oh, we, we finally agree. Yeah, we're only sort of what seven tracks down, and, and seven only each. Three then. from the end. But yeah. We agree. That's good. Well, on to the next track, "The Earnest of Being George." talking about Daytime Girl you said about the album lacking variety but for me earnest of being George this is the variety come back in the Bee Gees have slipped out of their Bee Gees shoes and they've gone into their Beatles your blues shoes yeah. they're pro- properly rocking out on this one well don't you say that your blues I thought it was a revolver out sort of out track 
Oh, yeah, along with In My Own Time. That's it, that's it. But yeah, I find this one a sort of a heavier track. I've not really got a clue what the lyric's about, but there well, was an original version called Granny's Mr. Dog, which I've read was a slightly faster version, but I've never heard it. Robin seems to believe that there's a story to this song. He sees it about a guy that's being used. He then quotes the lyric, You bought my love and I paid, which I can see. That, oh, okay. That makes sense. Barry instead describes this song as a musical adventure rather than having a meaning to a song, with the Bee Gees being as abstract as possible without any real meaning to the lyrics, which reflects with what you Yeah, said. yeah. And it's got that sort of stop-start um, yeah. thing in it, isn't it? I mean, it reminded me a little bit of the uh, Beach Boys, Little Girl I Once Knew. Split, man. Well, in the nature of those songs, don't worry, listeners, we've certainly been doing stop-starts for this podcast. <laughs> More stops and starts, I think. <laughs> yeah, and I think also I read that this was one of Noel Gallagher's favourite uh, Bee Gees songs, whether it's any reverence to the Oasis doing Importance of Being Idle. It's all a play on words on Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest. I don't know whether you noticed, Chris, but this is one of the songs with no orchestra on it, just the band. I'd never considered that, but now you've said it, yeah, you're right. They're they're not there. I mean, Morris, you can, you can definitely hear his bass playing on this one, especially towards the end. And again, this is one I think we mentioned at the beginning of the album where it, it there's a, there's a fade on it that's I don't know whether they should have just stopped it rather than just let it fade out. I agree with the nature of the song having so many stop starts going through. It seems disappointing and anticlimactic that it should just fade out with the you'd better run just as fast as you can section without having a a proper defined ending. Yeah, well, if you, they did a version on Top Gear in the BBC, uh, probably in February 68, and I much prefer the ending to that. It's a good live, they play it and then finishes. Yeah. Did you understand that one, baby? Then have a diploma. What was Top Gear? Because it, clearly it's not the same programme as Top Gear today. No, there's no uh, um, Jeremy Clarkson in it. It's very similar to what they, I suppose, Radio 1 called Live Lounge. So it's where groups went to promote their latest album, single. They'd sing it live. I mean, there's people like, obviously, the Beatles are famous for all their BBC One stuff, because obviously a lot of that was all unreleased. Then there's famous people at the time, I think, like Jimi Hendrix. They all sort of went on there and the latest stuff on there I think the Bee Gees did quite a few BBC sessions you know Saturday Club uh, Easy Beat and obviously this one Top Gear and on this session they did Birdie Told Me with the sun in my eyes words the earnest of being George and the sun will shine what would be your score for this song? well even though it's totally different to Daytime Girl I've gone with a 7 for this one as well Okay, I've gone for an 8 this has always been one that I've been very much a fan of mostly because of the arrangement and the vibe and the Bee Gees are rocking and I'm, I'm all in for it. Oh, good. Well, it makes a change, doesn't it? Yeah. Makes a change and the change is made. <laughs> and here we are, the next one then. Look out my window I can see Tomorrow, just a whole way of sorrow. 
when the change is made. Okay, I'm going to make a, a bold claim here. This is the greatest Barry vocal on the album. Well, I actually tend to agree with you because I think it's really dramatic. It's a dramatic, slow ballad. I think he sings really powerful, soulful vocals on this one. I've got in my notes soulful power behind the mic. Oh, we, we agree on that one then. This is the sort of soulful power that he would then carry through into Give a Hand, Take a Hand. Actually quite reminiscent of the bonus track or the unreleased bonus track, The End of My Song, that we spoke about in the last episode. Good pick, because I, I put that, I read that somewhere actually. That Because uh, I mentioned when we were talking about End of the Song, I thought it was a bit like something from, a, from later albums, but hearing this... It's uh, definitely similar. And the song also features one of Barry's very first... Towards the end of the song, we have a proto-falsetto scream, which ten years later would be... Oh, I didn't hear that. Yeah, right... Just as it starts to fade, I think the song fades again, as most songs on this album do, but you can just hear him going for that scream, and you think that if Arif Mardin was in the studio, he'd have gotten him to go for that falsetto. Oh, right. I was looking through the set list of songs that they were performing in this period in 1968 during the promotional tour of the album. The changes made didn't feature on there, which was quite disappointing. Well, I think, I suppose we said earlier on, if it's more of a band song, didn't use an orchestra, so I assume as they took an orchestra on tour with them, they wanted to perform songs that utilised the orchestra. New York Mining Disaster, yeah. etc. Don't let that man with the glockenspiel work. <laughs> With regards to the soulful flavour of the song, Barry said that the changes made is a result of the Bee Gees' love for R&B. There's one thing that I've noticed since starting this podcast and going through and re-familiarising myself with the Bee Gees' music. They always knew the best person to pick for lead vocal. Whether who wrote it or not, it's... Uh, it, I mean, this sort of song suits Barry. Then you get other songs like Really and Sincerely, I couldn't imagine Barry doing yeah, and we saw that last time with One Minute Woman. We had Barry and Robin's version, and they obviously knew whose was the better version. And then obviously from sort of 75 onwards, it tended to be more of one singer. Unfortunately, yes, yeah. With them albums, they could have done with a little bit more variety. Definitely. Especially on... Um, Spirits Having Flown yeah. is pretty much entirely yeah. Barry. Yeah, it, it could do with one, uh, at least one Robin warble. For me, Chris, I'm going to give this one a, an eight. We agree again. I'm oh, that's not bad. An eight as well. Yeah, so that, that one track to go, then we, we agree on two. And the final track on the album, the title track, Horizontal. This track for me is a superb ending to the album. Very psychedelic, and it's got a really haunting melody. I completely agree with you. It's a fantastic way to end a fantastic album. Robin says that it's a very interesting track because it's mysterious and can't really be classified as any kind of style, 
except probably psychedelic. It has a dream effect to it. Well, it's very 67, it'll be said before in a lot of these songs. But I don't know whether you noticed, Chris, but I couldn't really detect a chorus in it. I agree. It's not a song that has a melody that sticks in the mind easily. No, because sometimes with that, you need a chorus to, yes. you know, to, to stick in the brain. And then you could... If you can sing along to it, then it's something... You know that it sticks and you know that it's... A... But that doesn't distract that it's still a really good song. No, yeah. Yeah, completely. Anything with eight pianos layered together on different tracks has to be a nothing short of an epic song. And then don't forget the Mellotron. Yeah, that comes in at the end and you've got some interesting backing vocals harmonising with the the pounding piano and the, the Mellotron, which is coming in and out in waves as yeah, the song to me, plays it, out. It, it doesn't sound like... Do you think it's a Morris or a Robin? Or? I'm assuming that Morris is on the Mellotron, so I would assume maybe it's him and Robin... Yeah, probably more... Funny enough, I thought this one probably more Morris on this one. Okay. And do you know what the song's about at all? The only lyric that stood out to me was, you are a good friend, friendly as good friends can be. Is this Barry singing to a dog, singing about a dog? I don't know. I I was in the impression it's more of a Robin lyric. Okay. Does that come with the existential nature of psychedelic? Yes, I think so. This song really stands out it sounds like nothing else in the Bee Gees canon can you think of anything else that this reminds you of no I can't because majority of their songs I know in the 80s Barry had a tendency to do long winding verses and then a chorus but at least they did have choruses I'm thinking of things like I Am Your Driver where it's quite wordy well the whole album is yeah Now Voyager yeah there's I Am Your Driver um I can't think offhand, but there's quite a few of them where... And then especially there's, there's Mount takes from the Hawk soundtrack, or Barry's second solo album in the, of the 80s. And they're exactly the same, sort of, it takes you about 20 minutes before you get to, uh, to the chorus. <laughs> well, the reason I like this one ending the album is because when you listen to all the other Bee Gees albums, they tend to end with a ballad. So it's quite nice to end with something sort of quite big and... It represents, I think, what the album's about. It's bringing together the themes, the instrumentation, the styles and the arrangements that we've seen throughout the rest of the album. The style in which the band are playing, the mellotrons, the style of harmonies, the psychedelia, it's all coming together. And in fact, it sort of brings the end to 67. Yes. As the Bee Gees even said, this is the start of the end. This is the start of the end. I will give this an 8 out of 10. My third 8 out of 10 in a row. I, w- I was torn between a 9 and an 8 on this one, but I'm going to actually go for a 9 on this. Okay, good. It's a little bit different of what's, of, you know, of albums to come, ending-wise, so I think it ends the album really good, so a 9 it is for me. And with that, we come to the end of our track-by-track track run-through from the Horizontal album, but just like last episode and just like every episode to come... This doesn't mean it's the end of the episode. We've got many more tracks to talk about, beginning with... You think that I don't even mean a single word I say It's only words And words are all to take So, Chris, what do you reckon this little unheard song, then? 
Well, this underrated gem, which is so underrated that we decided to name our podcast after it. <laughs> well, as far as BG songs go, we're not rating the extra tracks out of 10, but if we were, this would be a 10 out of 10. 10 for me as well. Yeah. I mean, it's so well known. It's, it's Barry's Yesterday. And it is a, an absolutely perfect follow-on song to what the Bee Gees were doing with Massachusetts to love somebody. They were really on a good flow here. Well, this one was released as a single in January 68, so it was a follow-up to World. How did it do? It didn't do as well as I thought it did. I thought it was at least number one, but in the UK it got to number eight, which is one better than World, and in the US it got to number 15. And that's an excellent single A-side and B-side, because that's coupled with Sinking Ships, which is another favourite of mine of these extra tracks. Yeah, do you think that's a Robin song, put on the B-side? It sounds quite Barry to me. Well, it's written by all three, and I believe all three are on lead as well. Sinking ships, watching the sail in the sun as it sinks in the sea. One of the greatest triumphs of words, apart from giving us a name for our podcast, is the compressed piano sound which Morris came up for it, which becomes a trademark for the Bee Gees. It features on songs such as Alive, the single from 71, 72... From, 72, that one was. ...from To Whom It May Concern. It features on there, and it's the compressed piano there's not much more way to describe it other than if you listen to that introduction from words which is really iconic whenever they perform it live morris usually hams that up and he'll start repeating that piano riff (laughs) yep that's me that's me Yeah, it's got. Well, they they always do it live, don't they? Yeah. I mean, that that's the mainstay. I I know when I went to see them in '91 when they was touring with High Civilization, that was that was a real big crowd pleaser. Yeah. The, you know, the stop start and then everybody starts singing and or if you're female screaming. <laughs> How many songs from High Civilization did they actually? There's quite a lot actually. They played okay. quite four. Yeah, it's probably one of my least favourite albums, but the concert itself was brilliant. Yeah, good. To quote Morris on the origin of this piano sound, we accidentally discovered this sound. I was sitting at the piano mucking around and I wrote a riff. I went upstairs and switched on the mic for the piano and then I started playing around with the knobs in front of me. Oh, are you sure you did say that, didn't he? <laughs> when I played the tape back, I had all these incredible compressed piano noises. Well, it's obviously worth it then. Yeah, absolutely. For this song, Barry is singing in a much breathier style. And this is something that he would carry forwards into particularly albums such as Mr. Natural. Well, throughout the 70s, wasn't it? Obviously yeah. falsetto, but uh, definitely his breathy vocals. And I think it's continuing right, right to uh, present day. Like To Love Somebody, this is a song that's transcended production and it's transcended generations. It's been covered numerously. Just offhand, I think there's a, there's a couple that I think. There was Rita Coolidge, mid to late 70s. 
she got in the top 30 with it. And then Boyzone did even better. They got to number one in the UK about 96, brilliant like that. So um, it's, it's done really well for quite a few people. Yeah. And I think Roland Keating then went on to work with the Bee Gees at the end of the 90s. Oh, yeah, um, Lovers and Friends. That's it, that's it. Another one of those long and winding choruses, I think, that I can remember. Mm-hmm. It's a great shame that this wasn't on Horizontal because the album would have been better for it. It's a strange one because this one was released as a single in January 68 and then a month later Horizontal comes out. So they're promoting the album with a non-album, well, two tracks, neither on the album. So I don't quite know what the reasoning behind that was. Whether, could it be another ballad too many for the album? Another mid-tempo, slower song? Which is a shame, really, because the album only got to number 16 in the UK, did a little bit better in the US and got to number 12. So probably if that was on it, it could have gone up quite a bit. Yeah, but I think this is such a fantastic song with such a great status and it got to number one and covered so many times. It's a shame that it didn't find a place. I believe the first time it was put on an LP was the best of Bee Gees. Best of Bee Gees. And now we come to a couple of the B-sides. We've got the B-sides for Massachusetts and for World. Those are Barker of the UFO and Sir Jeffrey Save the World. And actually, they, I think we mentioned it before, that they different B-sides in the US to the UK. Do you know what were the differences? Barker was the B-side in September 67 to Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Because, and then in November, the US used Sir Jeffrey. Well, for me, that's a good example of um, toy town pop sort of music set to sort of nursery rhyme lyrics. Yeah, once again, this is the Bee Gees back in quirky land. This is then back to Bee Gees first, Waller's Wailing Wall. Well, I think, yeah, and, and 67 was psychedelic, LSD, tripping and stuff. So lyrics would tend to be sort of a bit bizarre. And a good example, Chris, would be something like a really early single by Gilbert O'Sullivan, Mr Moody's Garden. On this song, I really love the brass and trombone use in the middle. It's reminiscent, you said Toy Town Pop, but also of that era, Penny Lane, using brass in a, in a very catchy, poppy way. Well, it's a catchy song, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. And it's also a style that... Even though Horizontal is devoid of this kind of style of music, they would then bring it back for idea. I think they are, this was deliberately kept for a B-side. Yes, yeah. Same with the next one as well. I think they were probably a little bit too obscure to put on the album. Well, for me, this is easily Barry's most experimental, off, you know, offering so far. 
quirky lyrics. I think you read something a little bit about this, didn't you? Yeah, Barry's found this one very easy to write because he has a great love and fascination for UFOs going right back to his childhood. And he regards this as one of his favourites. And I suppose if you're writing a song about a passion, something that you really like, you're going to have quite a good fondness for it. This This wasn't a song like Words or To Love Somebody that was intended to be sincere. But it's good to have in the catalogue. Yeah, and this is a song that's perhaps more suggestive of the type of work that they would go on to do with Idea. It reminded me of uh, I've Decided to Join the Air Force. All right, well, I prefer this one. This is the first of now a list of songs that weren't released at the time but have since emerged either through reissues or that were recorded by other artists or that have just circulated bootlegs or otherwise that we have uh, that we are aware of. This is a song that's unlike any other that the Bee Gees have done. Which is good. <laughs> not a fan? No, not of this one at all. Right? It's probably their worst song that... Uh, if, if you're going from 67, this is the worst song. You can see why it's left off. Um, I mean, it's good to have it in name and actually to hear it, but repeated listens, I don't think so. Is it the mysticism style? Is it the vocals? I don't like the vocals. I don't like the tune. I mean, I think it's just the Bee Gees messing around in the studio. Um, it's a record not to be taken seriously. I think they were just messing around. It is dated 1966, so obviously the it, whether it was recorded there, but I know it was obviously written then. I think it was recorded actually, probably late, sort of around about um, July, August 67. So obviously during the sessions for horizontal. And right after the release of Sgt. Pepper, um, with the style that they're going for, yeah. is Within You, Without yeah. You. But I think it was, it was left off. It, it, they were just messing around, still having a bit of fun. Yeah. An interesting thing to note is that despite going for the Eastern mysticism approach, there is no use or no prominent use of a sitar. I couldn't pick one out in the mix. I quite like the lyrics after the, the wailing. I think there's something interesting in there but as you have said it's very nice to have Talks about the cold on television Advertising in the intermission Lights down low glued to the screen There she is so terrifically My Yeah, this is another unreleased song that was put on the 2006 reissue, though the Bee Gees must have liked it because they did record it live in the BBC in October 1967 on Top Gear. Okay, I didn't know that. I didn't know that they brought it to the sessions to play live. Yeah, so obviously they must have liked it. So why it wasn't on the first album? Perhaps it was done with an intention to keep it for the next album, then other tracks emerged and they 
it, this one got buried in the mix. Well, it was, it was a cover. There was a cover version done in it by some group called the Sands. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how it performed. Like most of their covers that they gave away or people sang, didn't do anything. Got buried in the sand. Yeah, <laughs> swept away. <laughs> the harmonies for me are a little bit reminiscent of the Hollies. That sort of style of song. Mm-hmm. They do like their R's and R's on this song, don't they? It's also one of the songs that they um, sent to Brian Epstein. I think they sent him a few over. I've never heard it because obviously it was a different version that they sent to him. But uh, it's one that I'd love to hear. When was this sent over? Well, I think there was. they would have probably sent them over prior to going on the boat, coming over. So that would have been tail end of 66? And hence why I think they re- this was written in 66. Right. Okay. Sent, and then there was a list of records they sent over to him to listen. It's, it's a good bonus track yeah pleasant song nice blending of Barry and Robin's vocals but nothing much else for me I don't miss it not being on the album no I don't no let me show you how to be alive good looks not far behind let me see you keep a steady Yeah, this is another good song, but for me, I much prefer the uh, verse to the chorus. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It, it should lead to something better, just to ring my bell, ring my bell. It was, what, it was the first song, or one of the first songs they recorded for the horizontal sessions. Whether they decide, if they'd have took it further, they would have redone the lyrics. Yeah. Because it sounds to me like it's an outline of a song. They've got the verse sorted... They've got the chords. The chords, and they start to sing Ring My Bell, run a bit out of ideas, so they keep singing Ring My Bell. Realised the song was going nowhere and abandoned and then, it. And then just abandoned it, because I don't think it, it was... Was, uh, it given, was it given to anybody? Not that I can see of, no. Well, if this was a bit more worked on and had a, a more developed chorus, this wouldn't be out of place on either Horizontal or Bee Gees First. Oh, I could see it on Bee Gees First quite easy. Yes. When you're out of line You say Can you spare the time Oh I know you're out of line Yes I know you're out of line And you will say Likewise, to ring my bell, out of line feels incomplete, a little bit empty in some places, despite having a catchy and sometimes quite Beatlesy lyrics and style, particularly the pre-chorus, the "and you will say" section. I well, do really like. Well, I think with every song they do, there's always there's always that little something, isn't there? That draws to, you in. And that draws you in. It's always got some form of quality, though whether it's good or not so good. But it's just amazing that there's another one of these songs that lay dormant for. 40-odd years that nobody's ever heard of. You have these individual songs that are left off that you think this is really good, but you have to remember it from the Bee Gees perspective of you've got 14 other songs competing with this. For any other artist, if I wrote a song like that, it would be going on the album, but the Bee Gees were so prolific. That and the trouble is you don't know whether how long they worked on a particular song for, and probably they, 
they just exhausted it and thought, well, you know, we're fed up with that, push it to one side, we may come back to it later. But as they were so prolific, they just kept writing better and better songs. So, yeah. And this leaves us with a selection of Christmas-inspired numbers which appeared on the 2006 reissue. We have Thank You for Christmas, All My Christmases Come at Once, and then a medley of uh, Christmas numbers of Christmas standards. All my Christmases Despite having Christmas in the song's title and in the song's chorus, this is in no way a Christmas song. This is the song has "All My Christmases Came at Once" as the chorus, but this is this is a, a phrase that we use even now. You know, it's as though all of my Christmases came at once. It's as though you know all these good things happen, and that's what the song is. Oh, okay, I hadn't I'm thought of that. Is yeah, about. Yeah. It doesn't. You know, there's no sleigh bells. There's no you know, Christmassy effects. This wouldn't appear on the Christmas charts at all. And it's a fine song. Again, fine that it was left off. Nice to have. What was it about this period? How come there are these Christmassy songs? Well, I think that there's one coming up in a minute we're going to hear, which is Thank You for Christmas. Now, that one, I believe, was used for a TV programme. One of these Christmas specials. It was filmed in um, Liverpool Cathedral. Thank you. Stand alone and thank you, Lord, for... It's a much more traditional Christmas song and if it were redone or if it had more um, airplay or promotion at the time, it could have gone somewhere. But this was the late 60s, it was just before the big Christmas song period. That was really during the 70s that you had Slade. The well, 70s was really Lennon big. Be, and, oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, this one, for me, he's got a good Robin vocal. And he, his voice sort of suits suit, sort of Christmassy type. Yes, it does. It, you're right, it does. It's got that sort of lilt to it that, uh, oh, well, I think it suits it anyway. But I don't think there's any TV footage of this that I'm aware of. I've never seen anything on YouTube or anything. So whether they, they managed, obviously they've obviously managed to keep the audio um, for it. But as far as I'm aware, there's no, you know, footage at all. Well, um, unfortunately, as the case was with a lot of television in the 60s and 70s, apart from audio, a lot of the actual visuals were junked. I think because tape was so expensive, yeah. wasn't it? They just really obviously thought nothing of it in the 60s and thought it doesn't matter because they sort of big, a lot of top of the pops episodes that were wiped. Who? Oh, Doctor Who, yeah. I think that's the only clip you'll see of the Beatles, I think, from Top of the Pops on a Doctor Who episode. Yeah, 1965's The Chase. Oh, Scott, you're a Doctor Who fan. (laughs) I think, Chris, that just leaves us with two or three tracks that that were never released and, to my knowledge, have never been heard outside the studio. Okay. One of these is called When Things Go Wrong. Now, according to Andrew Sanderville's book, this is quite a bluesy number with two guitars, drums, and a heavy reverbed organ. Um, also, there's another song which I think is an instrumental called Macklebury's Secret. It's, an in- it's just an instrumental, sounding very similar to um, Pity, another outtake from Odessa. And there's also a third one called Also Lonely. Is this an instrumental number? Well, I've seen or read that it's got Robin on vocal, um, but the lyrics are very rambling. 
Um, there's also two trains of thought here. Robin thought that it was a Bee Gees composition. Um, Barry thought it was a Vince composition. Okay. Surprised didn't just ask Vince himself. Yeah. Probably if Barry thought it was Vince, that could be a reason why it wasn't included on the reissue. Ah, good point. If they weren't going to get royalties from it. We are also aware that during this period, going across 1967, there was also quite a long string of covers of Bee Gees songs, but many of these songs are from the Australian period, so we'll cover the covers of the songs and our opinions on the songs themselves in those episodes. There's artists such as, we, we go back to Abby and Esther O'Farron and Ronnie Burns. Oh, does he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll cover all of that at a later date. And Adam Faith and Nolene Batley, Los Bravos, The Family Dog. Never heard of any of these. No, neither have I. Don't think anybody else has either. <laughs> the Bee Gees. <laughs> Okay, and now on to the press reception and critical reception of the album. This is going to become a regular feature of the podcast where we'll look at Amazon to see what the general public thinks with regards to CD reviews and LP reviews of Horizontal and all the albums. From over 50 ratings, it has averaged 4.5 stars out of 5, which is good. And on AllMusic, journalist Bruce Edder, he describes Horizontal as being less focused than their first album, but also presents a more majestic sound than its predecessor, giving three and a half stars out of five. Well, I would say it was more focused, but it's certainly a more majestic sound. Yeah, I'd agree with that as well. Dad, what did you read in The Record Collector about this album? Well, what it says is that the, there's a music magazine at the time called Disc, and they made Horizontal their album of the month in February 68. Mm-hmm. And according to this, it's, it contained a stunning and diverse selection of Gibbs songs from the Parisian feel of... Uh, really and sincerely to the soulful blues of the changes made and looking on Wikipedia it seemed to get a mixed reaction from fans probably owing to having a darker lyrical tone and a heavier musical sound than the first uh, album and the ultimate biography seems to agree with that saying that Horizontal has a darker tone than most Bee Gees albums both in the lyrics and what was called a heavy musical sound nothing is light and cheerful on this disc in which Lemon's trying to forget and the crowd being proud to see Harry Braff win the race have an almost desperate sound to them. The Bee Gees' first priority was to convey a constant mood, and from this point of view, the album is a success. Quite scathing at the beginning, but I agree with what it's saying at the end with regards to this feels like a band album, this feels like a consistent band who know what they're doing. Before we get on to comparing our scores out of 10 and giving our overall personal conclusions for the album... Let's talk about the artwork cover packaging, because there's two versions for this. There's the American and the UK release, uh, but that's because they were on two labels. Yes, they were on Polydor UK and, was it Atlantic or Atco? In the US? In the US. You've got the UK version, which is seems to... You've got the brown... With a mirror. Brown with a mirror. And then in the US, you've got the... It's a close-up of the mirror. Oh, I see. So and the image, it's a different image. Supposedly, in this book here from the 2006 reissue, it says that the image is flipped, but it's actually a completely different image. I suppose it suits the album, doesn't it? Because it's, very, it's uh, reflective. <laughs> very good. It yeah. is, it really yeah. is. It conveys the mood of the album. Yeah, because it's totally different to the first album. 
do you prefer this one or Peaches first? If I'm looking at the full album, I would, you know, as a large okay. album, big one, yeah, I would, I would, I would prefer the first one. Okay. But as you, as you said, this kind of horizontal suits the mood of the album. Yeah. With regards to the scores, we've both just totted up all of the scores out of 10 that we gave the songs during this podcast and also counted up the original scores that we gave to it before doing the research for this episode, divided them by 12, the number of songs on the album, to get what our average was out of 10 before and after doing the research for the podcast. For me, uh, originally the album came in on a 6.9 out of 10, but since doing this podcast, my rating has gone up to a 7.75 or a 7.8 out of 10. How about you? How does yours compare? Not that far different from you. Um, I've totted all my scores up originally, and it was a total of 77. Um, and after listening to it a dozen or so, half a dozen or so times, I come out at 84. So working out the math, do, do a quick edit. 84 by 7, that, well, that, that's 7 out of 10. Yeah, and the 77, I assume, is not, is what, 6.5? Six, 6.5, yeah. Oh, okay, so we are not, uh, we're not that far different. Our jumps have both gone up by, yeah, for me, 0.8, for you, 0.5. Yeah. It's a definite improvement on the album since doing this episode. Apart from Harry Braff, which and I gave it originally 5. Yeah, I stuck And then it went, it went down to 4. Yeah. Upon reflection, for me, this is the most consistent Bee Gees album from the 60s. Gone is the eclectic genre bouncing mix from Bee Gees first which would reappear on idea instead resulting in 12 very well considered and very well arranged tracks which reflect how much the Bee Gees have matured since arriving in England at the beginning of 67 I think it's a step up uh, from first but what is great is rediscovering um, songs I previously not paid too much attention to yeah I really like the last three now okay that's the way they end the album they're the three main ones when doing my 10 out of 10 scores. Shut up. Good. That's very good to hear. In true Bee Gees fashion, things are never done chronologically because whilst Horizontal was released in February of 68, already in the January, sessions had started for Idea. On that note, then we'll finish with Jumbo, the uh, another non-album single. Jumbo! Jumbo! Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees podcast, presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepsen. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Words Bee Gees Podcast and on Twitter at Words Bee Gees Pod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at wordsbeegeespodcast at gmail.com. I went upstairs and switched on the mic for the piano. (laughs) And switched in the mic mic for the piano. And then I started playing. (laughs) 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 Oh, God, I've got to do it.